HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from whenever to about one who knows from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Hot as hell, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. Yeah, it is. Is this some sort of, what's that yoga called? That hot box yoga? You know the control. The controller is right by your feet. What? The AC is uh, somewhere on the table. What is it, a guitar pedal? No, by no, my no. Feet? I mean, well, but by Nastasia's feet. Are they not no. on the table anymore? We have, we have like, uh, <laughs> for any of you, remember, remember the rat? Remember the rat? The guitar pedal? The rat? I absolutely do. Yeah. You stomp it and it turns into grungy we whatever. Should, yeah, we should wire that up for the AC. Just wire up uh, like, a, like a foot pedal? We have to get an old actual rat. Uh, I mean, those, those are still in use. Yeah, you don't have to look hard. Really? I, oh, yeah. I played bass, of course, not uh, guitar. Too. So uh, I had an actual bass wah-wah pedal, but, uh, you know, because I used to listen to stuff that used bass wah, but, yeah. like, somehow the bass wah just took all of... Nastasi, can you make this work? I can't Aren't make it work. Aren't you a gear guy? I'm a gear guy, but not when I'm trying to talk to people about bass wahs. Uh, it took all the chunk out of the bottom end of the bass. I think what you would need to do is split before the wah have the wah as an overlay so you could keep some of the lower end of the sound. It just always thinned the bass out, the bass wah-wah. Did, was it Cliff Burton's solo on that Metallica album that made you get the bass wah? No, I was a, I was more of a kind of, uh, I, okay, like, uh, I was more like a Bootsy Collins yeah. kind of, uh, you know. Uh, he put so many effects on his bass that sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on, but, um, yeah, I gotta love Bootsy Collins. Everyone loves Bootsy you Collins. Listen, you listening to Thundercat? Oh, no. I love him. No. What? No, really? Really? No. You, he is, oh man, I'm so excited. You need to go listen to Thundercat. Yeah? Drunk. Thund- the album Drunk. Yeah? Uh, yeah, just do it. You'll, you're gonna love it. Named after Thundercat's the cartoon? I, God, I hope, I think so, based on the lyrics, yes. Nice. Nice. He's like the session player that all these people use, Flying Lotus, Kamasi Washington, et cetera, et cetera, and yeah, he's incredible. Uh, are you familiar with, um... Are you familiar, it's totally separate, uh, with uh, Austrian Death Machine? No. Yeah. So, like, unfortunately, it's the guy who I think he's in jail for trying to kill his uh, uh, wife from As I Lay Dying. I forget the guy's name. Uh, Yikes. Uh, yeah, he, he had a, I believe it's called Austrian, I think it's called Austrian Death Machine, but it's all songs that are takeoffs, I think there's two or three albums, takeoffs on Arnold Schwarzenegger lyrics and uh, and movies. So like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a like a death metal-y kind of a, get to the chopper, but it's just like, get to the chopper, like that with a fake Arnold voice. I will most certainly listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... I can't listen to like a whole album, but I could listen to like a quarter of an album. No, I'll listen. I'll listen for the stupid grin it's going to put on my face. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think he also. I mean, he doesn't just you know stick to the shoot 'em ups. He has a little. I think he does a version of "Who Is Your Daddy and What Does He Do," which is you know <laughs> obviously, you know everyone likes Kindergarten Cop. If you have any sort of any sort of soul at all as a person, you have to enjoy both the Commando style of Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and the Kindergarten Cop style of Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. 
Nastasia, I don't think, has seen any of these movies, even though she continues to work with me for almost how long? I've watched her crap. I, she, I even watched The Bachelor once with you. you. Yeah, like half an episode. I watched a whole damned episode. What's the phone number to call in? Uh, 718-497-2128. That's yeah. 718-497-2128. So, uh, by the way, speaking of episodes, uh, Matt, I don't know if you know this, but this is the last episode we're going to have for quite a long time. I heard. Yeah. Because uh, we're, Nastasia is gone uh, next week laying the foundations for our next uh, L.A. event in Seattle. And then uh, I'm, in, I'm in Taipei. I'm going to go to Taipei and uh, spread the, the good word of uh, bar, you know, bar techniques in, uh, in Taiwan. My book was just translated over there into that, – did I already talk about this on air, how they translated no. it in Taiwan? But the messed up thing about it is, is that Taiwan is one of the last places on earth that uses traditional Chinese characters. So even though my book is now in Chinese, it is – unreadable by the vast majority of Chinese uh, readers because only Taiwan, and they're even getting rid of it in Hong Kong now, which, you know, to the great chagrin of uh, Hong Kong old timers, but the traditional characters have been phased out, um, you know, after the, uh, after, you know, Mao's revolution for the simplified characters. And so, honestly, I would like to say that you could read my book in China, but nope, nope. Anyway, so I'll be in, in – uh, then when we get back, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we – that Nastasia and I have to do. So we probably won't be back, people, till September, mm-hmm. right? So get all of your questions in now. And in fact, we have a question. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Hey, Nastasia. Jordana here. Rothman? Long-time listener. Mm, mm. Guest. Notable, occasional, occasional guest. Yeah. Notable lifestyle influencer. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does that mean, lifestyle influencer exactly? Collector of various facial serums. Wow. And wearer of status Birkenstocks. You know me. You yeah, know me. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Is, are there different levels of Birkenstock? When I was a kid, it was just like leather and cork. You got the one Birkenstock. There was only one level of crunch. Are there multiple crunch levels now? Well, actually, it goes in the inverse direction. It becomes less crunchy the more expensive the collaboration. I'm a few levels up. Birkenstock levels does up. collaborations now? Oh, they sure do. What the they hell? Sh- what the hell? hell? It's very hip. It's very hip, and you should listen to me, because as a lifestyle influencer of note, I mean, I, I'm here to tell you. I believe you. I believe you. But I'm just saying, like, if there's anything, like, you're like, like, can't anything stay pure? Like, I was okay when Doc Martin, Doc Martens lost their purity. That happened when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like, I always wore the, you know, like, the standard, like, steel toe, big puffy crap kicker, like, stuff. That, mm-hmm. you know, but then, like, I'm okay with the sequins and all that stuff. I mean, like, I, I like them. But Birkenstocks were supposed to be, hi, I'm eschewing all of this kind of, like, I'm just hanging out, man. But how can you have a collaboration who is it with? Please tell me it's with like like some sort of like Sacramento area like rapper like Lil Mozzie or somebody. Is it who is it? Two things. Number one, you are the enemy of progress. Number two, <laughs> yeah. Birkenstocks has lots of collaborations. One of them is Rick Owens. That's not what I'm wearing. I'm not quite there yet, but maybe one day. Wait, wait and they're not crunchy. No, no, they're super. The hammers seen me wear them. Are Listen, they crunchy or no? They're not. No one will ever see me. No. no one will ever see me in anything like this because it would require that you could see my feet. Because I am not going full German with the sock on sandals actions. No offense, Germany, but I'm not doing like the. That what do you, seems like you. Though. What do you sock on sandals? Yeah. Wait, are you? It does uh, seem so, like you. By saying by calling it sock on sandals, that's confusing. It, it sounds like the seem, socks really are over does. the sandals. Okay, anyway, who other than the like Germans be, put on sandals over socks? Well, literally, like, every, like, gender-fluid high school hip kit right now. So, I don't know. Have they all <laughs> been, like, paying it? Is this, like, are they looking at, like, old, I, I, like, again, I'm behind the He's times. behind the times. I'm behind so the times. But when I was says. growing up, it was, you had the, it, like, you got the Birkenstocks, like, you went on your German, like, your folks march, and you had the socks hike, hiked up over your calves, just underneath your knees, and no, ha- it's more like a it's more like a sort of like low it's not like an ankle sock, but it's like sort of not even mid calf, like a little bit below mid calf is the look these days. Jeez Louise. All right. Yeah, well I'll, anyway. I'll take your word for it. Hey people, 
uh, since this is ostensibly a cooking show, do not cook in sandals. Do, oh, I do. I do. I cook barefoot. You're a freaking nightmare. Yeah. Like you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna hurt yourself. I for safety I have. reasons, I have, I have to say, to. don't do this. I have a scar on my right breast from splattering soup on it. Whoa, 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 whoa! Vitamixing nice. it. I was vitamixing hot soup in an open kimono. So. Oh, jeez, Louise. I, I play it fast and loose. Listen, listen, Jordana. I hope you know this other safety tip when using a Vita Prep. Both before you use it and after you use it, verify that both switches are down and the knob is all the way to the left. You have to verify on low, especially with hot soup. What are you doing burning yeah. yourself? Another thing that happened is that I, I dropped a curling iron on the same breath and then forgot that I did it. And then I woke up the next day and had like a welt and I was like, oh, my God, it's like sepsis. Like I am in big trouble. I like wrote a panic letter to my doctor. And then I went to get ready for the day and picked up my curling iron. I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So anyway. All right. Well. Anything uh, in the name of beauty and food. So, you're, <laughs> so your safety challenge is what I'm hearing. Let me tell you one thing before you do this. She has a question. Especially when you have sandals on. When you drop the knife, let it fall. Don't try to catch it, especially not with your foot sandals, lady. Okay. I'll take that. I'll take that point. Yeah. I'll take that point. Yeah. All right. Okay, what's the question? So first of all, number one, I just wanted to wish you a very happy anniversary with the hammer. I know that we're coming up on 11 years, and that is... A very, very significant milestone, and I wish you the very best. Why is eleven? Why, why is eleven significant? Well, I have this memory of being at Wiley Dufresne's like eleven-year birthday party at WD50 because like they missed the ten-year, I guess, and then Jelena's came to town, and then we all like hid behind the booze and did like a surprise birthday party. So I don't know. Eleven seems really significant. It's also lucky. I'm sure it has like some numerology significance. I don't know. It just feels big, and I just wanted to like take the second and just like shout you out, both lifestyle influencers. It's a long time, guys. Long time. <laughs> Thanks. We influence people to not have our lifestyle. That's for sure. <laughs> but uh, thank you. Did, but did, are we going to are we going to talk cooking or what? You got to. Yes, cook? I have All a right. question. I have an important question. All right. Okay, so. I recently was in Mexico, and I made an impulse purchase. Okay. And the impulse purchase was an entire frame of honeycomb. Okay. Um, and I was, like, super excited when I found it. I was like, oh, my God, this is so special. Like, what a beautiful, like, sort of whimsical, romantic thing to bring back. And so I brought it back, and it was, like, a real, like, I'm not going to, it's, like, a real hassle to travel with an entire frame of honeycomb. I bet. And then as soon as, soon as I, like, had it, back and even when I got back to New York I was like what the hell do I actually do with this thing and I think in my mind I thought oh I'm gonna have a big cheese party and then everyone's gonna eat honeycomb and cheese but that would be like 120 people each eating like they're a lifetime share of honeycomb in the space of like a two-hour party so it's not gonna happen my question is like a like how do I store it b is it like safe to just like have for a very very long time c any ideas of what I should do with it so I'm assuming that they didn't cut the cap off of it, that it's not uncapped. It's completely capped, both sides? Very good question. So it, when I purchased it, it was, like, largely capped on the surface area, but it's definitely, like, because of the heat and, like, sort of driving around with it in a hot car in Mexico and then flying with it, et cetera, I can see that some of the caps have sort of, like, deteriorated right. underneath, it, underneath the backpack. Right. So for those of you that don't know, uh, the way that – the way that this works is, I, I forget the guy's name, but there was a, a single person who it, it figured out this um, thing called B-Space. And B-Space is, if you just put, the way they used to do it is they would put bees inside of uh, beehive-shaped, what we traditionally think of as beehive-shaped, Winnie the Pooh-shaped things. Uh, and bees would just build honeycomb on the inside of it. And they would form these layers, but the layers would be stacked up in a way that was difficult to get to. The honeycomb would be glued together. It was hard to harvest the honey without uh, destroying the hive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they, you know, they would lift these baskets up, and then they would break the comb apart, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then this person, I believe in the 1800s, whose name escapes me because I didn't look it up beforehand because I didn't know you were, we were going to talk about this, uh, figured out this idea of B-space, where if you space these things called supers, which are the sheets that the honeycombs are built on, a very specific distance apart, 
then the bees will form exactly one layer of honeycomb and then not attach it to the next layer of honeycomb and will make the next layer. And that is what has allowed the removable uh, honeycomb frames, the large square frames of, of honey that you see today, it's this bee space idea. Uh, now, a second big innovation is that bees take a certain amount of energy to produce the wax that honeycombs are made out of, because honeycombs are made of wax. That's what beeswax is. Uh, and so um, it used to be they would just build the whole thing from scratch, and then they realized if you pre-make the, uh, the wax base with the hex pattern on it, they'll just build up the things and then, and then fill them and cap them. And so now, uh, in fact, what they do is, is that the bees will cap them over, you'll pull them out, and then they have a hot knife, this is why I asked about the capping, that will slice the top cap off, and then they sometimes heat, sometimes not, depending on what your view of heating the honey is. Of course, in Mexico, you don't need to because it's so freaking hot. And then they'll dump the honey out of the uh, frames, and then they'll just reuse that wax right away so that the bees can you know, fill it again without using a lot of extra energy. Now, uh, so just explaining kind of what we're dealing with. Typically, when you buy honeycomb in the store, in the small plastic uh, boxes, they've uncapped it because you can see it kind of bleeding out. So you can, that's, again, this is why I asked. Now, what to do with it? That, like, how many pounds is it? Ugh. I mean, it's basically like, it's probably about two feet, maybe a foot and a half long, and then like a half foot high. So it's like... Whatever, and that's one layer of honeycomb. You can imagine, yeah, probably yeah. like I don't know, like a pound. I don't know, yeah, a pound, something like that. I mean, like it would be cool. Like you would lose a bunch of the honey, but I could imagine like cutting it into blocks that people could uncap at their plate and pour all over their like individual cheese course. So we don't need to do it kind of all at once. You know what I mean? I've never yeah. seen I've never seen someone do that before. Um, yeah. Well, how do I store it if I don't use it all at once? I guess is the question. Well, the, I... the good news is it, well, the pro, here's a, the, the good news and the bad news. The the good news is is if it's still liquid now, right? As long as it doesn't get too cold, it will probably stay liquid. Um, if it crystallizes, right, then you will need to heat it to uncrystallize it. And I don't know, I don't know uh, the. I don't know the temperature at which that will happen versus the temperature at which the wax will start degrading, if that makes sense. Right. Um, it, you know, from a m microbiology standpoint, it's good. You know what I mean? You're at 82% uh, sugar there. There's like almost no water activity, so to speak. Of Nothing's going to grow in it. It's fine. So whereas maple syrup at 66% uh, sugar is going to uh, grow mold if you leave it in your pantry – uh, honeycomb won't, right? Uh, now, the, the other thing, though, if you're worried about heat damage, and this is something I think people don't think about, don't store it on the top shelf of wherever you are. The, the top shelf of your kitchen, especially if you cook, can be like over 10 degrees hotter than at counter level um, because, one, it's just always hotter up high because uh, warm air rises, but as you're cooking – like uh, hot air from your stove, unless you're very good at evacuating, it pulls up around the ceiling. So the ceiling of your kitchen can get quite hot. So I would try to store it as physically low as possible. I would avoid, if you can, um, refrigerating it just because it will almost undoubtedly then crystallize and then you won't be able to pour it out of the individual things if you choose to serve it that way. Does, mm -hmm. that, make, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So yeah. basically, safe to eat. Store it at, like, more or less room temp, low, maybe in, even in, like, my garage wrapped up so that uh, it, like, stays a little. Yeah, I mean, so I, like I don't know your garage, but, yeah. I mean, like, uh, or, you know, just I, I would try to protect it from extremes of heat or cold. Um, okay. Now, let me ask you this. You're in Mexico, but th these are regular European honeybees, right? These aren't uh, Melipona honeybees. I'm going to be honest. Definitely not a question I asked at the Mercado Hidalgo in Tijuana. That's not Oh, a, it's in Tijuana? Okay, so they're yeah. not they're not Melipona then. That's fine. Because I was going to say that um, the Melipona honeybees, which typically are not grown on a regular full... In fact, I don't think are ever grown on a full frame like that. Um, they produce a honey of possibly substantial lower sugar content oh. and as a result wouldn't necessarily be... 100% shelf stable. So at, at the bar, we store the melipona honey in the fridge just because 
we don't trust that it. it's a hundred percent stable, but other honeys, yeah, are, are, are fine. And like I say, and in fact, can can be a pain in the butt if you um, if you let them get too cold because they'll they'll crystallize. Some countries, like uh, if you buy honey in um, England, typically it is creamed, so it's 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 beaten a little bit and then allowed to crystallize so that it's more spreadable and less of a liquid pouring thing. But mm. here in America, we prefer a you know a Horrible honey. That's 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 what we. Uh, that's our jam. Winnie the Pooh style. Yeah. Winnie All right. Style. Final question. Although he was English. Come over for a cheese party. What kind of cheese? I he love cheese. Travel. What do you mean you travel? <laughs> Nastasia. Lo- Nastasia loves to say things about me. Dave, uh, are you going to go to a cheese party? Probably. Not. I don't know when is the cheese party. <laughs> I don't know. I have to figure out when I'm going to open the frame of honeycomb, and then I and then if you want to come to the cheese party, we can talk about it. I would tell my kids about the honeycomb, and they would get super psyched, and I'd be like, "No, yo, no, not not the cereal, like actual honeycomb." Do you like honeycomb yeah. the cereal? Yeah, I, I haven't been. I, have, I don't know. You've I've never had the honeycomb the cereal? I know that it exists, but I I didn't have the honeycomb cereal. No. What was the cereal you had growing up? Um, I don't know. Oats. Oof. Oats. Gruel. I had I had morning gruel. Okay, Oliver <laughs> Twist. Please, sir. I want I've some more. Up. This is why I'm so, like, hashtag blessed and have so much hashtag gratitude as a lifestyle influencer because of my, my humble roots. You're in the, in the, in the workhouse? Yep. Yeah. Hold her. I would, Scold her. I would clink, bounce her, I would bounce her, pick mug. him up and bounce her. Uh, <laughs> just singing Oliver tunes. Word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's a great show, so I'm glad you grew up eating gruel. You know. Yeah. Have, yeah. You, have you ever I seen mean, Oliver Twist? I mean, yes, I've definitely seen Oliver Twist. Fagan yeah. was like a big character in oh, my childhood. Oh, Fagan. Uh, yeah, my, yeah. My yeah. dad loved to just sort of quote the whole thing and, and really, you know, drive home the, you know, the privilege to remind us that, you know, we're better off. And so it could always be worse is a common Jewish household refrain. Yeah. And, it's, it's interesting uh, that you choose Fagan because have you ever read the actual original Dickens stuff? Horribly anti-Semitic, the original Dickens stuff, and yet popularized in... Uh, in modern culture, like the most famous uh, actor of Fagan, whose name escapes me, but he died a, a couple of years ago, was Jewish and kind of like turned it into like his, kind of his, his best known uh, thing. And that character was kind of rescued in a way from being this like horrible pit of, of like kind of uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, 19th century garbage into something that we're all like, you know, you better pick a pocket or two. You know, all of a sudden it's become this thing where we're like all like, you know, we're all okay. We're all okay with it somehow. You know that David in has life, always wanted to be on counts. Broadway, right? In the bank. Lodge he knows amount. so many show tunes. It's Things as these well, don't grow on trees, Nastasia. You better pick a pocket or freak it too. All right? Well, anyway, happy anniversary. Thank you for the B lesson and everything. Impressive as ever. And enjoy the rest of your show. Mm, thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, Chat desperately wants to know, uh, to know, has your ch- cherry allergy been cured? Uh, okay, so has my cherry allergy been cured? Nastasia was hoping that my throat would close up, and you would all, like, enjoy hearing it. So when my throat closes, I do, like, an amazing Donald Duck impression when my throat closes up. But uh, it turns out that I can now have at least a limited number of cherries. The maximum number I've had in a row to date has been like 10 or 15, but I'm, and I would, my wife doesn't listen to this, so it's okay. I would be lying to say that I felt nothing, but, <laughs> okay. but, right, you know, now you have more Oliver songs going through my head. If I could say he wasn't very greedy. Oh anyway, but, uh, but, in other words, I am, I would like to eat an entire, like, whole bowl of cherries, but I, I won't. So I felt a little bit and I stopped. But it didn't progress, so I never felt like I was going to have to go to the hospital or even really take a Benadryl. I really I hate taking Benadryl. I hate taking Benadryl so much. So I can have, uh, yes, I can have cherries now. So now when I go out to restaurants and people are like, are there any allergies at the table? I don't say anything anymore, which is a great feeling because I hate to be like, cherries and loquats. They're like, no kumquats? I said loquats. Kumquats? Loquats. Loquats. Like Lindsay Lohan quat. Loquat. And no one serves loquats anyway, so it's yeah. a dumb thing to say. <laughs> I, 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 dumb thing to say. I haven't tested 
I, I was like, raw jackfruit has given me reactions before. Like, you know, like no one serves raw jackfruit, so you don't want to have to give the explanation. So I'm going to separately test loquats and raw jackfruit. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. The people needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, Devin the Dude also asks, any point to pressure frying for home cooking? Best info I found online points to its speed and tenderizing ability for tougher chickens of decades ago. Uh, yeah. I am a tougher chicken of decades ago, for sure. Well, okay, so it's interesting. Um, obviously, the professionals uh, pressure fry. I don't have personal experience with it. Now, there, uh, we answered some questions a while ago um, from... I should probably do it for the next book because it's part of the theme. It's not just low temperature cooking. It's it's like all forms of moisture management, and this is a form of moisture management. So I should, in fact, deal with it. The, the people who used to sell pressure fryers stopped selling them, I'm guessing, because of horrible, 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 horrible liability problems. I mean, can you imagine like having someone pressurize oil? And when you read the when you read the manuals for modern day pressure cookers, and they mention like frying, they're like, nope, nope. Um, but that said, I would love to, I would love to try it, and and you know, but I don't have any I don't have any influence. My guess, um, any um, firsthand knowledge. My guess is that uh, since it's the way all the professionals do it, that it produces a better product. I have never tried it this is why so look one of the advantages of pressure cooking is one you yes as you say there's probably some tenderization effect of the um of the of the meat due to the pressure you know why not just test like a pressure pre-fry so this is why uh, most of the time I, i low temp no matter what kenji says i think he's wrong on this crap and you know we just need to do a side-by-side battle on this. Like I do a pre, I do a pre-cook most of the time of my chicken before I fry it. Now, where I never used to. It used to be I did it the old school way, where I just turned the temperature of the oil way down low, and then you would like hit it a couple of times in and out, go in and out to try to get the inside done at the right thing. But I was never cooking any of the old tough chickens, and I've never fried an old tough bird. And it used to be the majority, if not all birds were old tough birds, but they had better flavor. So like, I, you know what? I should try to get some old like roasting fowls and just pressure cook them and see whether the breast meat is even palatable at that point. That's why I usually use that stuff for soup. Soup! Uh, because, I mean, the flavor is really good, but Americans just don't like a chewy chicken. Do Americans like a chewy chicken, Nastasia? Yeah. Hate a chewy chicken. Mm-hmm. Might want to talk into the microphone. Nastasia's hugging the microphone, which is weird. <laughs> Normally she hates the microphone, but she's like she's trying out a new thing. She yeah yeah. It's like it's like some sort of sign of like love and respect. You know how like when a dog goes up and puts its like head on your knee, she's doing that to the microphone. It's like you know, it turns out the sound when you make sound comes out of the front of your mouth, and then if you point it into the microphone, yeah, she's trying to sound like one of those old smokers with the thing up their uh, throat. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, uh, we already talked about that on air, right? Is my oh, most I embarrassing know, maybe, moment? I don't know. Uh, no, what is we that? never spoke about my most embarrassing moment. No. Please say. Do let's I know do it? that now. Do I know it? Of course, you know, know it. it. What is it? It's not food related. I know. Tell me. I believe I said Just this. Just say it. It sounds like it's an issue, so we can yeah. talk about it. So, uh, Nastasi and I both have a habit of putting our foot, like, not oh, so much our foot as, like, all the way down to our knees, into our mouths at various <laughs> points. Can't yeah, true. like, like, true. like, like a German knee-high sock. <laughs> we can get our foot that far into our, into our mouth. But, uh... Wait, which one? I so, I was at my... So, I've, I grew up watching, uh, Peanuts. You know, the, like, uh, Snoopy, Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown. And um, Snoopy used to play what's called a jaw harp, right? Some people call it like, you know, I don't, they use a different term, which I won't use because I don't even understand like how it's related, but jaw harp, right? And it goes, and it's like shaped almost like a lyre with like a little like metal spring in it. And you put it in your mouth and you hum and you, and you do the spring and it, and so Snoopy played one in one of the peanut specials and I used to watch it as a kid and I always had a fascination with this instrument because it was like required no skill in the same way that a kazoo requires no skill right and do you like kazoos growing up mm-hmm. Matt kazoo fan growing up love a kazoo everybody loves a kazoo really if you think about it people say they hate a kazoo but everyone okay, if you go on. if you hand them a kazoo they start playing the kazoo so 
uh, I'm at college and I'm a book uh, fiend. I, I take anyone's books at all times. I like it. So my friend was graduating and I went over to his room and I'm looking at his book. So like, you know, for those of you who don't know me, I don't so much pay attention to what's going on around me. Right. And so I'm looking at his books to see if there's any books that, you know, I can have because he doesn't want to ship them back to California where he's from. And I hear bing, 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 bing. Now, in my defense, I knew that the guy came from a musical family. Like, you know, his, his dad was a professional musician. His brother was a musician. Like, no. they come from a mu- musical family. So I'm hearing, me, 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 me. I'm like, I turn around and go in my best hey voice, hey, who's got the jar? And I turn around and it is his grandfather who had throat cancer with a trach and a little microphone. Uh. And he was holding the microphone up to his throat saying something to somebody. And I was like, goodbye. <laughs> and then I walked out. <laughs> And that was probably <laughs> the most embarrassed I've ever been. I would just, every once in a while, I say to myself, who's got the jar? And then, like, goodbye. It's your, like, your reflexes are just too fast. You thought of that too quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I was so excited. I was like, I, you know, I've only seen these a couple of times in my life. I've owned one. I went and found one and bought one in pre-internet days. I'm like, here's someone playing one. In the room where I am. Have you? Can you tell the one about uh, uh, forehead? No. Why? No. You don't have to say the people. No. <laughs> Why did? No. No. Well, you're gonna be off the air for a whole month. People yeah. forget. No. Yeah. No. We were at a table no, with a mutual no. friend. <laughs> yeah. No, take but take it from there. <laughs> no, it's not even that good because you have to know the players. I'm not gonna tell you who the players are. Basically, I say, "Hey, that guy's got a big forehead, huh?" And the other person's like, "That's my brother." <laughs> Okay. But like, you know, like standard stuff. But it's just like, it's like a mutual friend. So Nastasia yeah, always... you couldn't leave. You had to sit there for the rest of the dinner. <laughs> it was fine. It's fine. His head, his forehead was large. It, the, the jaw harp thing is way worse. Oh, yeah. Way worse. The guy had, you know, whatever. Anyway. I um, mean, yeah, I'm sure that technology has gotten a lot better since then. Um, so. Oh, my God. Wait. I'm Okay. So there's a person on the line. Uh-huh. Do you want to... You want to talk to them? Uh, yeah. Why? If you make it seem as though I don't. I, I forgot about them for a minute. Oh. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yes, let's talk. Let's talk. Caller. Uh, hi there. Am I on? Yeah. How you doing? Hey, Dave. This is, hey, this is Will from Oregon. Um, I'm super glad I called in uh, right before you went off the air uh, for a month. But I, 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 have, I have two questions. I'm going to ask the first one, and then we'll see if Nastasha lets me get the second one. Um, uh, so I'm I'm interested in uh, doing recipe development on uh, vegan ice creams or right. vegan frozen desserts. Um, wh- do you have a recommendation for what kind of machine I can use in the like, you know, thousand to two thousand dollar range that will give me like really accurate test results when Ooh. I scale up to a larger type of equipment? That's real cheap. Um, that's so like first of all like how. As am I. Yeah, yeah, right. How um, how handy are you? Are you handy with equipment? Uh, pretty darn handy. Okay, I mean, yeah, because uh, you know, it's like un- sub one thousand, right? As far as I remember, it's been a long time since I've searched. You're looking at something that will, you know, you're not looking at doing like one-off stuff, like like doing LN or even like trying to get used pocket jets, which are much more expensive. Like usually, you know, everything sub 1000 is like those countertop kind of home stuff. And the problem with those is just the refrigeration units just simply are not powerful enough. So you're never going to be mimicking the batch times that you're going to get out of um, a real like, you know, commercial, like more than more than $6,000 machine. Right. So it's like. You know, and, and the difference between a machine that has a batch time of like 20 minutes and the difference between that and something that can have a batch time more like eight minutes is enormous in terms of testing for the ultimate texture that you're going to get um, out, of the, out of the product. So um, I would say if you are handy, and I, I'm also always hesitant to have people buy used equipment, but... Um, you know, the generation of ice cream machines that people used to use, 
uh, in restaurants that are relatively small, t- like tabletop-ish, but big, still run off of a 110 or still air-cooled, right? Stuff that makes your life easy. Like, for instance, the old, uh, the old Carpajani LB, uh, LB100s, like those used to be like top-of-the-line machines for their size, but they haven't been made in like a decade. So it might be possible to buy one. I think spares are still out there. Now, I haven't looked, but spares are still out there. You might be able to get one or find a, a restaurant or something that's closing down and, and get one. Um, back when I was going to try to get my own ice cream maker, they uh, Carpajani used to make a very small uh, uh, vertical machine that was functionally the same size as like the Lellos and those kinds of uh, inexpensive, uh, um, inexpensive beating $500 machines, but was originally like a $3,000 machine that you, know, you used to be able to get for like 800 bucks or thereabouts. I haven't looked for one, but I also haven't seen one in, in a zillion years, but it's good for like kind of like prototyping work. Um, I would say that uh, it's, a t- it's a tough thing. If you're just looking, I mean like, uh, I don't know if this is making any sense. I mean, I would do an eBay search and uh, or even Craigslist or look at uh, online auctions and see if you can get one. But then you have to be willing to realize, you have to realize that um, no matter how much of a tinkerer you are, tinkering with uh, refrigeration is a huge pain in the butt because unless you have some sort of illegal co- connection to an HVAC thing, you have to hire a real, uh, you know, a real um, refrigeration person to come in and look at it because no one will sell you the refrigeration stuff without the proper permits. You know what I mean? No one. Like even for the modern stuff, which shouldn't necessarily be an issue in terms of the refrigerants, like no, just no one will deal with you. Uh, and so I, in general, have stayed away from working with, um, working with, uh, trying to tinker with refrigeration. Um, geez, you're in a tough spot there. Jimbo from the chat says the Muso well, Pola 5030 is a 1200 used on Amazon and he thinks it's a solid buy for this purpose. Yeah. I have to look at it. What's the batch time on that sucker? Jimbo be fast. Yeah. Um... But anyway, so while we're cogitating on this, what's your what's your second question? Do you uh, what's the point of using, using liquid nitrogen to do recipe development, or is that going to be just way too fast to compare to the commercial equipment? No, liquid nitrogen is fine for recipe development. You just gotta, um, you know, as long as you get the, I, I would take a, a very standard base and then do it with liquid nitrogen, so you get a feel for it. Uh, get the rubber scrapers when you're doing the KitchenAid. Don't try to do it by hand. Uh, and then realize that, um, you know, 10 times out of 10, most people uh, either under or over freeze with liquid nitrogen. It's very hard to get exactly the right, um, the right you know, freeze level. Um, you also have to be a little bit careful because it foams so much that it's somewhat difficult to completely control the overrun just because there's so much bubbling on it. Uh, so... You know, I love I you know liquid nitrogen ice cream. We used to that's how we used to make ice cream for people at events, just because it was easier than going over to the pastry department and wheeling over their tailors and their uh, you know their tailors and their carpajanis, and then they would bitch that we didn't clean them out right and they needed it for their class. Blah 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 blah. blah, blah. So like liquid nitrogen was just how we would make it. Um, you know, we had Paco Jet too, but that was always hard because. Uh, the freezers were never quite in the right order to do Paco Jet a la minute, and then if it was spun out beforehand, it would melt. So anyway, like it was always just easier for us to do LN out of the um, out of a KitchenAid once you have the rubber scraper. And it's definitely if you have an easy supply of liquid nitrogen nearby, it's it's not it's expensive on a on a batch per batch basis because you're using probably more than a liter of liquid nitrogen to make a liter of ice cream, right? But um, in terms of its initial outlay to see whether or not you like what you're doing, it's relatively less expensive. You can also honestly just, you know, use one of the old, get a rival salt and ice if you're only doing it occasionally. It's just, it's hard to be 100% um, consistent. I've had good luck with an old rival uh, I've had good and bad luck with White Mountain because the wood dashers on the White Mountain, um, uh, the official, you know, old school one, the wood dashers, I've had, I've had some that I've had good luck with and I've had some that I've had bad luck with and I ascribe it to the fact that they want to use some oldie time wooden dasher instead of some like modern, like actual like Delrin or plastic 
you know, dasher. I don't know why the hell they do that. I, like, I don't need some sort of, I, you know, I'm not doing it to like try to commune with my ancestors. I'm trying to make freaking ice cream. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's great information. Um, and my last question is, can I put 190 proof through the Spenzol? Uh, well, it's unsafe. I mean, they, they, it's just an explosion hazard. <laughs> you know, so it's not going to hurt the okay. it's not going to hurt the Spenzol, but um, you know, it's you know the flash point of of that stuff is I, I'd have to look it up, but it's probably room temperature or below. So it's you know we don't. We don't like making a lot of uh, alcohol vapor, so I would just uh, ca- I would caution you. I would caution you there. Hello? Okay. What's the what's the what's a good upper limit? Uh, I don't know. I looked it up based on Flashpoint once. It's whatever I put into. It's whatever I put in the manual. I don't have it off the, off the top of my head, you know. So I'm not worried about really anything that we do at, at the bar. And you know, like I say, it won't hurt the unit. It's just you know. Um, a lot of people are complacent when it comes to alcohol vapor. Ask anyone that's done traditional um, distilling and then had some sort of a horrible fire uh, as a result of uh, vapor. So, um, again, I'm not saying it will explode. I, I just, from a safety standpoint, as the manufacturer, I can't tell you to do anything where the where you have something that is possibly at or above the flash point of the of the liquid it's just not it's not possible for me to even discuss it you know what i'm saying uh i just cut him off actually because we got one more caller to sneak in here if we can all right caller you're on the air hey guys (laughs) one question is that i promise uh um i have a fried chicken question uh we we made some version of uh hot chicken last night uh, on a on a whim, and uh, the texture of the crust uh, kind of sucked. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions, um, uh, you know, tried and true techniques to just get a get a good crust, even if, if it involves using some kind of modified starch. We have a couple things on hand that we can use. What do you do that you didn't like? Um, I mean, I, I did like the uh, flour, buttermilk, flour. Uh, basically hit it with flour three times and then dropped it in the fryer. Um, but it just seemed, it just wasn't really crispy. Um, and what, I, I what was in the buttermilk? Uh, it was a little bit of hot sauce, some seasoning and, uh, buttermilk. Okay. So in the, so if you're going to do a, uh, traditional like flour, buttermilk, flour kind of a situation, uh, I would in general, put the seasoning into the buttermilk. It's just easier to do than trying to season your flour mix, but that's me. Uh, also, you need egg in there and baking soda. Uh, and I think I, 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 I put soda and powder in, but at a minimum, you're going to want soda and, um, and uh, egg. And uh, that should increase the crunchiness level uh, substantially when using kind of regular flour. And that's going to give kind of your your traditional, well, my traditional kind of kind of crust. Now, I know there's a, there's a whole different there's a whole different scenarios, right? There's the there's the direct out of brine into flour kind of people. But like if you're going to do uh, like like flour, buttermilk flour, it, you, you didn't use egg. Uh, actually, I did. I did. Uh, I used egg yolk. Yolk. I mean, the yolk is going to soften the crust, right? So I would like, in general, like I understand where you're coming from in terms of not wanting. Like, there's a lot of people out there who think that uh, hard and crispy are the same thing, and they're not. Like, I don't like a hard crust that doesn't have the right kind of shatter, right? And yeah. so, like, I can understand yolk as a tenderizer, but I've only ever used whole egg in, uh, and I use it. At about the, uh, it's been a while since I looked it up, but it's about an uh, an egg per cup of buttermilk, I think, is what I use. And did you use okay. uh, soda and or powder in the in the in the buttermilk or no? No, I didn't. Yeah, so I would try the soda and the powder because that's gonna uh, poof the coating out a bit, and so like those air holes that you're gonna get from the blowout on it, I think is gonna increase your crunch level substantially. 
I think okay. the protein from the egg white is going to help you in this case and not make it too hard. I think if you were going to use like a crap ton of eggs, then that would probably uh, damage that. Um, damage that. Um, right now at the restaurant, I know uh, you know they're, we're doing a bunch of like non-traditional like slurry-based coatings that are almost entirely starch-based, right? And so for those, you're working with the properties of specific starches. So adding things like tapioca will give you a little more chew and crunch. Uh, potato will give you like a lot of that initial like swell. So like a lot of people doing mixtures of like rice, potato, uh, a little bit of tapioca for pliability and chew if you like that. Um, but if you're, you know, a traditional, a traditional flour coating can be quite crunchy, but I think maybe it's the, the soda and the... So soda is good for a number of reasons. One, it's going to... It, well, it depends on, on your... It's going to make it turn brown faster because, remember, the buttermilk is uh, acidic. So if you don't add, um, if you don't add uh, some sort of base to neutralize it, the acidity is going to um, it's going to make it be very blonde. So it's going to take a long time for the color to develop properly. Uh, I can't say offhand in a fry coating what acidity will do to the texture of it. If I had to guess, I'd say it would make it softer. So adding the baking soda is going to make it uh, neutralize some of that acidity, going to make it so that it browns more effectively, but also will immediately create... It's the equivalent of using seltzer. So, like, for people who use seltzer water in their batters or, or carbonated vodka or whatever in the heck people are using now to introduce air bubbles into the batter to lighten it and make, make things more crispy, uh, adding soda to buttermilk creates an instant reaction. It's like an acid-base reaction that instantly aerates the mixture and it's going to add to um, the crunchiness of the, of the finished product. So I think... Your main thing is soda, and then you can also experiment. You can add some powder. You want to be careful about going too crazy on soda and powder because um, some people are more, uh, what's it called, more um, sensitive to the taste of leaveners than others, but it's pretty easy to go over-leavened on stuff like that, and then people can start tasting the leavening. If that, you know, Nastasia, yeah, although Nastasia hates like over baking soda things, except for she drinks water that is fundamentally flavored with baking soda. So as normal, she is a conundrum. Don't you like that weird baking soda water, Anastasia? Yeah, yeah. Why? I don't know. Oh, weird. Well, no accounting. But anyway, cool. give it a well, give it a you. shot and let us know. All right, sounds good. Thanks. All right, cool. All right, now we're we're just about out of time here. All right, but I got to do my I got to do my last. Uh, it's the, the last one for a while. I carry eighty pounds of books here. Okay, if Nastasia, if Nastasia allows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter what I say. Go. Oh, it doesn't matter what I say. Oh, no. Big Bad Dave. Big Bad Dave. Oh, my God, go. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It's like... Please. We live in Dave Arnold's world. Oh, yeah, we live in Dave Arnold's world. <laughs> we live in Dave Arnold's world. I wish you people were on this telephone call with us earlier in the day. Yet another depressing Dave. call. You know, just like God forbid any of you have to build stuff somewhere else because it's a nightmare. I don't wish the kind of crap that we have to go through on any Dave Arnold's world. Crazy. 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 Do you, let me ask you a question, Nastasia. You like Elon Musk, right? Mm hmm. So imagine. Yeah, but he. Imagine has if balls. He, he owns his own. But he like. See what I'm saying? He's mean a, to people and is like, and you're done because you're not working out, and you're done because you're not working out. So imagine if he didn't own like his own means of production. First of all, like he makes this thing called not a flamethrower because he's not allowed to sell flamethrowers. By the way, flamethrower. For those of you that have never caught on fire before in your lives i can speak as someone who has flamethrower is the most horrifying weapon i mean not every form of killing somebody is pretty terrifying pretty bad but like like spraying someone with gel that can't be put out even underwater is just a horrific way to kill somebody you know what i mean uh but anyway imagine if if uh, if we were like elon musk and we went to these factories and we're like we're trying to build this flamethrower but we're going to call it not a flamethrower, but basically it's a flamethrower. All you got to do is look at the technology of flamethrowers. It works. It's been used for like 100 years. They have flamethrowers. Build it. And they came back and they're like, yeah, yeah, but how about this? It's a lighter. You want to sell this lighter? No, I want to make a flamethrower! And that's the same problem we're having with a different piece of equipment in our factories in China right now, right? They're like, yeah. they're like hey, you want to build this other thing that like we already know how to build? And we're like, no! Yeah. Anyway. 
That's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about the last installment for at least a month of Classics in the Field, yeah! All right, so today, because we're not going to be here for a while, I bought, like, a multiple kind of circular Classics in the Field that has um, a lot to do with stuff that I was uh, interested in growing up and kind of, you know, people I've known, books books I have read. And so I'm trying to figure out exactly where, exactly where we should start it, but I'll start with this. The very first book, so I grew up in the, did you read cookbooks growing up, Nastasia? No. Did your mom have them around the house? Some. And did you, but did you read them at all? No. So when did you start caring about this, if, if you do? I don't. You don't care about food at all? No, I don't care about cookbooks. Well, go on. how'd you get interested in food? I like to eat it. But you used to say that you like to cook it. I like to cook it too, but I, I've never used cookbooks. Where did you learn anything? I don't know, watching... People? Which people? Being in working in Italy. Working where in Italy? Like living with people in Italy. That working with. Well, how long did you live in Italy? Off and on for two and a half years. Well, how old were you? Twenty-five. So you didn't cook anything before you were twenty-five. Not really. Okay. Uh, what about you, Matt? You like cookbooks? <laughs> I like cookbooks. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's a good answer, Matt. Like I'm just answer. trying to find the shortest route. Yeah. You guys are the worst, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Honestly, people. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Uh, so when I was growing up, I would read uh, all my mom's books including, of course, the famous Julia Child's Mastering the Art of uh, French Cooking with Simone Beck. But I never really got much out of that. The very first book that my mom bought me when uh, I moved out of college uh, with my eventual wife, we got an apartment, was Julia Child's uh, The Way to Cook. And so that was kind of my seminal introduction. And by the way, I think probably, although I haven't read it in years, still kind of a, a, a great book. But at that time, um, Julia Child's main you know, career as a television personality was mostly in the past. She had like some TV shows on. This is at this point in the in the mid to late in the early mid late nineties. Uh, but the kind of second wave of people that she had brought on were really big on TV. And one of those people was uh, Jacques Pepin. So uh, Jacques Pepin was uh, the chef for uh, I believe he cooked for uh, Charles de Gaulle. He cooked for uh, Mitterrand. Uh, and then when he came to the United States, he actually quit being that kind of a chef to come to the United States to work for all of things Howard Johnson's. And uh, so I was, you know, I, I loved him. I, I was introduced to him actually through uh, Julia Child's work. And then he had his own show, uh, which I which I used to watch. Um, at some point in the in the '90s, when I moved to New York, I stumbled. And this is before I met him. So long story short. When I started working for the French Culinary Institute, Jacques Pepin was uh, one of the deans there. So I kind of got to work with him, kind of get to know him. Remember what, this, what the interns used to call him? No. Jackie Peeps. I thought you named him that. Well, I made it up, but then they started using it, Jackie Peeps. So, we, uh, so I would work with him uh, on a lot of stuff. We used to see, you know, work with, with demos together. But before I ever worked at the French Culinary, I think one of the reasons they wanted to hire me was because I found in a, uh, in a thrift store... A, a book, uh, a two-volume set, I actually only found one volume, and I had to search for years to get the second volume, called uh, Jacques Pepin's The Art of Cooking. And this is a, a, a book that I think anyone should search out if you want like a view into kind of a very specific time in kind of the crossover between French cooking and American cooking. So this was put out uh, by Knopf, Back when, uh, as uh, it was told to me, Old Man Knopf still ran the, the publishing firm. And this book was a two-volume set on French cooking. It was put out in 1987. 
and it was a huge bomb. It didn't sell hardly any copies. So this is not this is not uh, Jacques Pepin's like one volume that was used to be two volume set of black and white step by step shots. This is a full color two volume set including uh, Jacques Pepin's uh, making menus, but his step-by-step stuff on how to, how to make kind of all of these crazy things. Back before I could look this stuff up on the internet, Jacques Pepin had how to devein foie gras in these books. Uh, he just has like a whole series of this like weird, like old school recipes that I think you should really, really, really um, take a look at, including like his famous uh, techniques on many different ways to ev- eviscerate and, uh, and break apart chicken. So Jacques Pepin was very famous for saying he could uh, completely debone a chicken in, I think, like 12 seconds or something like this. Now, when I knew him, he wasn't quite that fast anymore, but he was still pretty fast. Uh, and I still, to this day, use the technique uh, for that Jacques Pepin does for when I'm going to bone out a chicken to keep it whole, which is, you know, you cut down the back, you open up. And you, you could look it up. He's put that online. Nastasia makes fun of my – I used to be very fast. Nastasia says I'm terrible because she's only seen me try to do it with turkeys, which are significantly harder to debone. What were you making fun of me for, Nastasia? I can't remember what you were doing. But, like, I had to talk about it and inside-out bone without cutting a turkey, and you were making fun of me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know, whatever, any, any opportunity to make fun of me. But this book didn't sell anything, I think, because Americans weren't quite ready for it. In it, he tells you how to uh, eviscerate and skin a rabbit uh, and how to take a whole baby lamb, rip its skin off, take the guts out, uh, and prepare, prepare all the different parts. He was friends with a lot of like interesting uh, people, so there's a recipe in here for chicken salad that was given to him by Danny Kaye. Uh, the actor and uh, conductor musician, uh, which uh, to this day, it's kind of like an old school, low temp way of, bring, of putting the chicken in, putting lots of chicken into a small amount of uh, broth with uh, vegetables, bringing the pot up to the simmer and then covering it and letting it ride out as a way to cook it all the way through without overcooking it, which is a technique I used for years before I had other better uh, techniques. So definitely a classic in the field uh, worth searching out. I spoke to him about it once. And I was like, hey, uh, hey, chef. I was like, uh, you know, I have this, uh, your set of books from Knopf in the 80s. And he was like, this is the best books I've ever made, but uh, I can't sell them. Anyway, so you basically, he even said this is his master work, that you should go check it out, even though it's completely, it was completely impossible uh, to sell it. And when you look at it, it's kind of cool to see an old, uh, like a young Jacques Pepin. You're not used to seeing this young Jacques Pepin, are you? No. It's kind of like, you know, I mean, how cool does he look? Cool. Cool. So that brings me to uh, the other classics in the field that I have today, uh, which is when I read Jacques Pepin's memoir, which came out, I don't know, 10, 10, 12 years ago, something like this. uh, He mentioned one of his favorite cookbooks. And it turns out when I read that, that it was also one of my favorite cookbooks. But you have to find the correct editions. So uh, there is a famous set of cookbooks called, um, uh, well, there's a famous cookbook author. Uh, Henri Paul Pelleprat. Pelle, I don't know what Pelleprat. Pelleprat. In, in English, it would be Pelleprat, but it's probably Pelleprat, which is uh, the French. It's spelled Pelleprat. Anyway, it's the. It's called the Modern French Culinary Art in English, and this was a book. This guy was uh, the chef who uh, helped. He was the founding chef of the Cordon Bleu School in Paris, which, and this is where the circle turns around. Uh, where Julia Child got trained. So uh, the Cordon Bleu Cooking School was founded in the 1890s, and it was um, kind of a, uh, what's called, a collaboration, to go back to uh, Jordana. How, what, do, what do kids call that now? A collab? I guess. Collab? Uh, between uh, Marta Destel, she was a, a journalist, and uh, the chef, uh, Pelleprat, who was, um, they started this cooking school in 1895, specifically for women. Now, in their modern way of putting it, it's they want to... Uh, Provide the emancipation. They wanted to provide the emancip- what's it? emancipation of women through education, which seems kind of a goofy thing to say about a cooking school back in the day. But it was specifically aimed at um, teaching uh, women. Now, uh, Pelleprat, he was a professional chef, and then between world, he taught at the culinary school. And then at World War One, I, I think he had to uh, deploy for a little while. In between World War One and World War Two, is when he wrote this famous book. Uh, and then he writes, and this, this book, this copy of it, and this is the important part, you need to look up, to get a copy of it, you need to look up the Virtue Press. So the Virtue Press came out with uh, a series of books. They were a publishing house out of Ireland and London, and they translated a bunch of French works. Among them is the, is the modern French culinary art. The edition I have 
is from uh, 19, uh, in the late 1970s, but, um, or the early 1980s. But you have to, you have to get it. And he, uh, he basically says, it is a great, I'm trying to read the, the Pelleprat section. He thinks, the author thinks that this is a book that people are going to use at home. So this, the interesting thing about it for me is this kind of idea of modern-day people, when they want to learn professional cooking, learn professional cooking, and it's very different from home cooking. And people who are interested in home cooking are more interested in kind of modern cookbooks of quick and easy meals or how to do this or that sort of uh, kind of uh, cuisine in a, in a simple way at home, rustic kind of cooking. But this whole era was full of how to do extremely weird, high-end stuff, but in a home style, i.e. not necessarily having all of the base sauces. So that's the interesting thing about uh, um, Jacques Pepin's The Art of Cooking and about uh, Pelleprat's book. But he goes, I can't find the, the section because I did, lost my post-it notes, but he, um, he goes through basically saying that everyone else who writes books on this subject uh, are charlatans and how he has taught people how to cook at the Cordon Bleu for over 30 years and every single recipe in here he's cooked himself and therefore this isn't some BS that other writers uh, write. This is the real deal. Uh, and so you know, for that reason alone and because this was Jacques Pepin's favorite cookbook as a young man growing up, uh, came out initially, I think, in, 19, in the 1940s. He died in 1949, so this probably came out in the th like 30s or, or 40s uh, to look at. But the other books you need to get out of this virtue thing, and this is the one that I think Nastasia would enjoy, is called Buffets and Receptions. Now, Buffets and Receptions, and you want to get the edition that I have, which is from, I believe, 1979. It's a translation along with uh, editing into English uh, by some chefs, Pierre Mengalate, Mengal or Mengalate, a lot. I don't know, Walter Bickle and Albin uh, Abel, Abelnet. Uh, and this book, if you can find it, is the biggest gem of a book that I think you can get. If you think that finding like an old LaRousse uh, gastronomique is interesting, you got to get this. Not just because it's the only cookbook you're going to have with a recipe for whale in it that tells you exactly what size whale you need to buy. So if you get, and, and by the way, I'm going to Iceland and I'm not going to eat whale. I don't want it. Would you eat whale? No. I would not eat whale either, and I'm not, you know, saying you should, you know, eat whale. But there is a recipe in this book. But uh, the pictures in this book, if you ever wanted to know uh, what the buffet customs of any like European uh, country were in the '70s and before, because all the people who are writing this book, these books, the Pelleprat and this book, have connections all the way back to uh, actual kind of Victorian times, and so it spans an era of cooking that's really lost to us. So when you go see like a, a buffet at a cooking school and you see all that stuff in gelée and aspic, it's kind of like weird and ridiculous, right? What do you think when you see that stuff? Gross. Like all kind of touching, touchy, touchy, touchy food. But when you read this book and you look at these pictures, it goes back to an era when this was really much more of a live thing. And so you have like the crazy, crazy presentations of like a, a peacock made of uh, butter with like all sorts of like food terrines. Look at this, Nastasia. Wow. Look at this, like the trout, like totally laid out. So there, like I used to just sit and read this book for hours. I don't think I've ever made a recipe out of it, but I used to sit and read this book for hours. Look at this, look at this, look at this rock lobster thing. Mm -hmm. It's like all the crazy, like high aspect, high touching, high, uh, you know, puff pastry presentations. And so they really are a treasure. I don't believe that any of these books are available uh, on Google Books because they're all still within copyright. But if you can look up the Virtue Press, the Modern French Culinary Art, uh, Buffets and Receptions, uh, and the New International Confectioner, which is the third of their main things that came out of that series in the 70s out of Britain, some of the best kind of 70s uh, pictures that you're ever going to see in cookbooks, like uh, just a cool, amazing window onto the past. Really a great set of editions. And Jacques Pepin's uh, books out of the 80s. Whoop, oh my God, that's hundreds of dollars of books I just dropped on the ground. Uh, the Art of Cooking, which is a fantastic series. Maybe outdated for all you people, but the people on the YouTube aren't doing all these old school things. People on the YouTube are doing new school stuff. If you want a window in the past, you got to look at the step-by-step -step pictures of uh, the stuff in the, uh, that was happening back then. And if you go any earlier than these books, if you go into the 
30s and 20s, there are some step-by-step books with step-by-step pictures of what's going on, and I can bring uh, some of my old confectionery books in to talk about at some point. But um, because of the relative uh, cheapness of production of books later on, uh, and relative cheapness of photography and printing, this kind of book only really became as big as it is later. And so you got to look to this era if you really want a window into that era of cooking. Anyway, classics in the field. Talk to you guys later. Cooking issues. Cooking issues is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.